Hey everybody, welcome back to our third and final installment with Professor Dan Ippolito. It's been an amazing journey of discussing evolution, and I have to correct myself because I've stated a few times in here that he believes in evolution, which evolution is not a belief system, just to clarify that. It is a theory that is well accepted in the scientific community. With that being said, enjoy this conversation. The question is, how do we avoid tribalism then? If fundamentalism isn't the answer, if relativism relativism isn't the answer, so where is the middle ground that we find? It's tough. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of a book called The Benedict Option. It's by a, a, the author is a man named Rod Dreher. He is a lapsed Catholic who is now Eastern Orthodox. I think he also dabbled in fundamentalism. But his point is that we've lost the culture war. Relativism has prevailed. The best that Christians do can do is batten down the hatches, strengthen our communities, our schools, our families, and weather the storm. Just like Benedictine monks weathered the storm of the fall of the Roman Empire in the early Middle Ages. He has backtracked a little bit and said, I'm not calling for a total disengagement from the culture. Just don't expect too much. (laughs) It's tough. You know, as an educator, I have to believe that patience and dialogue, I mean, the sort of thing we're doing right now, does plant some useful seeds. And that's what we're trying to do here. You know, we're not all about just getting rid of our faith and deconstructing it. I don't know how many episodes you've listened to, but some of them... We get pretty heated, um, but I don't want to be all about that, just tearing everything apart. I want to get to the fundamental, not fundamentalism, but to the fundamental truths of what are we to do? What is the answer? Because they're so, I made a post, uh, a, a tweet this week because I see so many um, ex-evangelicals and agnostics and atheists out there almost just angry at religion in general and just hostile and volatile and we just need to fight this just you know screw all christians and religions and all that and i made a a tweet and i said you know coming out of the place that i did there's a lot of things i want to get rid of and i would consider myself an ex-evangelical and at some points i consider myself an agnostic i don't know if i believe sometimes and that's still something i'm trying to work out but what I don't want to do is take everything I've been through and use it as a weapon. What I don't want to do is hurt. I want to find answers and I want to figure truth out. I don't, I don't want to just beat up the person I disagree with. Which unfortunately is what a lot of people do these days. Yeah. But again, if you don't believe that there is a standard you can appeal to, that there is something greater than yourself, then ultimately the human inclination is to silence those who disagree with you True. because they make you feel bad. Notice all the ruckuses on the elite campuses, you know, shouting down unpopular speakers. I mean, it, it scares me to death how many students at the elite universities, and I'm a product of Yale, don't think much of the First Amendment and think that speech that makes them feel bad 
by disagreeing with them yeah. is tantamount to violence. And so the whole I, hate speech thing. And so I yeah. am yeah. justified in using any means, fair and foul, to silence you. Yeah. It's Nowhere terrible. does it say that we have a right uh, not to be contradicted or disagreed with. Exactly. If anything, the lifeblood of a liberal education should be vigorous civil debate. Yeah. But it's not civil anymore. Exactly. It's not civil because, again, you're not appealing to a standard. You're just trying to shout down people whose very existence offends you because they disagree with you. I mean, recently a survey indicates that if you survey Democrats, they don't just think Republicans are wrong or misguided. They are evil. And conversely, mm-hmm. true. Uh, Republicans took longer to get to that point, but now they feel the same way. You yep. know, people who lean left are not just misguided, they are evil. Uh, and so... How do we come back from that? It's tough. <laughs> Find the middle ground. It's really tough. Yeah. Uh, but again, as I said, one person at a time, one debate at a time, one podcast at a time. Yeah. I, I wish I had a, ma- a magical solution. Yeah. But I think also, since both of you guys, it appears to me, have been, you know, scarred by fundamentalism, on top of that authoritarian structure that you talked about, another problem with fundamentalism is that it asks you to believe things that are so evidently self-contradictory that you live with a cognitive dissonance true i mean if you're really going to be a literal reading of the scripture joshua stopped the the sun in the sky so you have to go back to a ptolemaic system in which the sun orbits the earth if you yeah if you want to be really hardcore in either matthew or mark the temptation of Jesus. The devil takes him to a tall mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Well, then the earth has to be flat because if it's round, how can you see the kingdoms on the other side? Yeah. And uh, so, I'm a flat earther now. Uh, convinced <laughs> You've convinced so, us. And so uh, a lot of these things are just untenable. Yeah. I mean, even this is another, well, but you guys had more questions. I'm rambling. Uh, no, it's still a good conversation. Yeah. Uh, just to put a quick footnote on the end of that first mm-hmm. question, uh, you kind of boiled it down to the point of if evolution is true, mm-hmm. which, I mean, it, regardless of whether it is or not, if it is true, mm-hmm. how can mankind be separated as special and you still maintain a Christian belief that God interacts with okay. us differently? Th- there's than- a number of ways. Uh, first of all, the way we know things. I mean, the story about Adam naming the animals. For the ancient Hebrews, names were very important. Mm-hmm. So we know the rest of the creation in a way that other creatures don't. Okay. Then uh, you have the command to serve and to keep the garden. God placed man in the garden to... to uh, Let's see if I remember the Hebrew. Shamar and Abad, to serve and to keep the garden. So we have a stewardly responsibility the other creatures don't. Gotcha. Thirdly, it does say we're made in God's image and likeness. Now, granted, given that God is not tall or short, you know, blue-eyed or brown-eyed and so on. Or a chimp. No, that, I'm just kidding. That, <laughs> right, that image and likeness must lie in something else. 
in our creativity. You've heard the expression created co-creators because mm-hmm. we, are, we are creative beings yeah. Yeah. Uh, in our moral judgment. And so there are a number of ways to salvage or to preserve human uniqueness without denying that the evolutionary process has occurred. So you would state that if, if it's God's hand guiding the evolutionary train to the point of humanity, mm-hmm. that would be him creating what, what we are as humans out of evolution. That would be the equivalent of um, him creating us uniquely with his breath inside of us and his images. It, it was the evolutionary process he used to shape us, not necessarily out of dirt, but out of that biologic process he crafted right. us well, well you know, there is a pun. Adam means earth. I mean, the best English mm-hmm. translation would be God made humans out of humus. Now, there is a legitimate question. Um, is all of our uniqueness due to the evolutionary process? Back in 96, Pope John Paul II gave a lecture to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences in which he you know, accepted evolutionary theory. He described what a theory is, you know, very eloquently. He said there are so many lines of evidence that converge on it. We can no longer deny it. But, he said, I would insist that when it comes to the soul or the spirit, we Mm. are in the presence of an ontological leap. In other words, he was arguing that the evolutionary process gave rise to hominids with high intelligence, with opposable thumbs, and so on. Mm -hmm. But then God conferred a soul on two or a group of these hominids. Now, not all theologians agree, but that would be the the ensoulment hypothesis. Let's call it that. So I like that. So that God didn't necessarily use biology to create craft a soul in us. That was it was a separate right spiritual event. Right. But I don't even see the necessity of that because uh, God does a pretty good job with material processes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, the the difficulty there would be, okay, but if we look at a progression, you know, from, you know, Australopithecus to Homo erectus, you know, to Homo sapiens, mm-hmm. where in that chain you say at this point we have full humanity, yeah. image and likeness <laughs> yeah. of God, Prior to this point, we don't. We're just animals. It's a difficult question. But on the other hand, if you look at light scattered by a prism, it's very hard to tell, you know, where blue ends and violet begins. But if you look at the two ends, you can say this is blue, this is violet. So just because our mind can't always identify transitions doesn't mean that that they're not real. There's not a, uh, I guess, a quantitative or empirical transition that we can point at and say that's where it happened well it's just just in the sense that um like it eight dimensional shapes exist mathematically but we have no possible way of seeing them we we couldn't even see a four-dimensional shape with our current anatomy let me give you an even simpler analogy what is the circumference of a circle it's two pi r okay now if all humans cease to exist it would still be 2 pi r. So where does pi exist? 
I would argue it exists in the yeah. mind of God. That's kind of a platonic argument. Yeah, okay. But, uh, you know, if all humans cease to exist, the sum of the square of the sides of a right triangle would still equal the square of the hypotenuse, even if we were not there to know it. Yeah, mathematics will still exist right, right, if we true. cease mm-hmm. to exist, yeah. Interesting. That's a really deep... I, so I have a question for you. So... <laughs> Um, obviously, you believe in evolution, uh, the evolutionary account. So, I accept the evidence for the account. <laughs> I keep saying that. I keep saying it. it's it's not a belief system. All right. Um, so how do you? Uh, so you don't throw out the Bible. How do you account that with the Genesis story? Genesis is, is first of all in the Hebrew. Genesis is very clearly poetry. There are rhyming patterns. Okay. There's wordplay. So it was never intended to be written as history. First of all, history as a discipline is of rather recent origin. Um, so I think also most scholars think that Genesis was written during the exile in Babylon. And so in some ways, really? it's a polemic against polytheism. In other words, Genesis affirms that there is one God, not many gods, and that God made the universe. The gods are not spawned by the universe. So, for example, you notice that in Genesis 1, the sun and the moon are referred to as the greater light and the lesser light. Mm -hmm. Now, Hebrew has words for sun and moon, but the author of Genesis chose not to use those words because in Babylon, the sun and the moon were deities. So what he's saying ah. is these are created things. They're not deities. Um, okay. Makes and so, um, so there are lots of creation myths in, in the ancient Middle East that are in some ways similar to Genesis. For example, there was a flood story, I think, in the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Enuma Elish. It might be an ancestral memory of a real catastrophic flood. But the diff- Which I've heard theories on that as well, right, including but- comets and ice shelves breaking off. and yeah, That would take <laughs> us on a lot of tangents. But, but, but the, the affirmation of Genesis that there is one God, not many, mm-hmm. a God who was and wants to be in relationship with us. We are not his plaything or his slave. And so, you know, reading the scriptures requires an understanding of culture, of intent, of the intended audience. I mean, imagine some Hebrew in the 6th century BC looking at the stars and saying, you know, Yahweh, how did this all came to be? All right, write this down. 13.7 13.7 billion years ago. Whoa, whoa, Yahweh, what's a billion? Remember that the Hebrews didn't have the symbol for zero. Yeah. yeah. Never mind. A long, long time ago, there was a point of singularity of tightly compressed atoms. Whoa, 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 Yahweh, what's an atom? What's okay, an atom? I'll tell you what. Never mind. Once living things came to be, there's yeah. the stuff called DNA inside their cells that can mutate. Yahweh, what's a cell? So you, you see my point. We yeah, are yeah. making... We are asking impossible questions of the scriptures. We wanted to answer 21st century questions that were not even conceivable by the people it was originally written for and by. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and we need we I, 
So we need to give it that allowance right. to give answers that don't fit a 21st century question and not hold it to that standard or it's it's a uh we're set it's a straw man we're essentially setting it up for failure if we're expecting it to answer that's very well those. put we are setting it up for failure if we expect it to follow the standards of modern you know historical chronology and our scientific curiosity and so on mm-hmm. i mean even the gospels which are a lot closer to us and give every evidence of being eyewitness accounts. But mm-hmm. even so, John in his gospel rearranges the teachings and, and the main speeches of Jesus around the seven major feasts of the Hebrew calendar. In the synoptics, the order is a little bit different. If we insist that everything fit, sooner or later, you know, we run into cognitive dissonance and that's when we're told, shut up, you witch. (laughs) No, and and people people would rather, yeah, whenever you get to that point, I think that Christians a lot of times, that's where that first question, the fear comes in and they say, you, the 21st, because the Bible can't answer 21st century questions, you need to stop asking them because this should be able to answer every question. That's the problem. If you have a question that this can't answer, throw your questions away. Exactly. (laughs) You know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, here is the Bible, this is the instruction manual for life. (sighs) That's a very limited and limiting view. Yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, all right, so then, should we legalize stem cell research? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about stem cells. Now, you can look at the teachings about human dignity and about protecting the weak and arrive at an ethical system that says, no, stem cell research is unethical. But if you're just looking for instructions in the instruction manual, it's not going to be there. Yeah. yeah. Or specifically, like you were talking about, like DNA and atoms yeah. and all these other things, like it's not going to be in there because it wasn't relevant it or wasn't, they wouldn't have understood. Exact, or, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, yeah, you, you are making, yes, you're making unfair quest demands on the, on the scriptures. So, um, my, so, time, my, my time does run short here mm-hmm. as far as, I, if possible, I would love to have you on again sometime because there's so many still questions and conversations that I yeah, think we could so have. so many topics we I, could I go into. Love, I would love to. Uh, we might have to get a little more creative with scheduling once. Yeah, but yeah. my Christmas break is coming up. Hey, look, there you so go. So that's a possibility. Um, Whenever you're free. I don't know if we have time to uh, answer this question. One more at, question. Throw it a, out. Okay. This is a difficult question. I apologize for what I'm about to do. It's <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what would you say, and this might be an impossible question, what would you say is the best evidence um, in your consideration for uh, evolution and the best evidence against it, even if that's terrible evidence. But <laughs> the best evidence that someone ma- would use. Many I people guess. believe both things. So okay, I'm, the, I'm going the, to give you very quickly a summary of first of all, evolution on a small scale is unquestionable. I mean, people die of infections that were treatable 20 years ago because bacteria have evolved resistance. Boom. I mean, that is unquestionable. Yeah. Just the other day on NPR, I heard how we're, uh, our struggle against malaria, where we thought we had malaria eradicated, 
But now the mosquitoes yep. have resistance to DDT. The parasite has resistance to the drug. So They're that, adapting. So that is yeah. unquestionable. Evolution on a large scale, you know, dinosaurs giving rise to birds, you know, whales from land mammals. There are five major lines of evidence. One is the fossil record. And anybody who tells you there are no transitional forms is either lying or grossly uninformed. And if we had time, I could rattle them off, sure. you know, number one. Number two, the argument from embryology, that very different organisms are much more similar as embryos than they are as adults. I mean, humans have gill pouches as embryos. Humans have a tail as embryos. Yeah. Number three, the argument from homology. If you look at all vertebrate animals... They all have, a, you know, from a whale to a horse to a bat, they all have a single humerus that articulates with the shoulder. They have an ulna and a radius. There are lobe-finned fishes, 400 million years old, that have the same pattern of bones in, in their fins. Hmm. So we have transitional forms, we have homology, we have embryology. We have vestigial structures. For example, snakes evolved from lizards, boas and pythons still have tiny pelvic girdles and external spurs. Whales still have little pelvic girdles and femurs embedded in the body wall musculature. Huh. In, back in 1920, a humpback whale was caught with a stump of a hind legs because those genes weren't switched off. What? Number five. That's insane. Yeah, the molecular <laughs> evidence. If you look yeah. at the number of amino acid substitutions or base pair substitutions, there are more of those between a human and a fish than between a human and a frog, even fewer between a human and a bird, even fewer between a human and a mammal. Uh, and so, I mean, the evidence really is formidable. The strongest evidence against the bombardier beetle the no, bible i'm just kidding you know I, I, well okay no actually i know what you're talking about the bombardier beetle or the bacterial flagellum and so on yeah in other words the idea that some structures are so irreducibly complex they could not have evolved by this lengthy trial and error process but for example the bacterial flagellum example yes there are 40 parts 40 molecular components that have to work in sync. You remove one, the flagellum no longer is functional for swimming. Mm -hmm. But actually, you could remove 30, and the flagellum, no, it's not good as a flagellum, but it's good to inject toxins into the host cells. So evolution could have worked on a pre-existing structure that served a different function. In oh, other okay. words, the it's an adaptation of even a smaller part of an right. organism. The irreducible complexity was the big argument of the intelligent mm -hmm. design I've movement, yeah. which we haven't really talked about today. But every single example of irreducible complexity, at least a plausible traditional evolutionary explanation has, has, been, has been put forth. Gotcha. So I'm really hard-pressed to give you a strong line of evidence against. Now, this is not to say yeah. that biologists don't argue with each other about the relative importance of mechanisms, about whether this or that fossil is the best transitional form, but those are the symptoms of a lively discipline. Well, I remember watching uh, Ken Ham's debate with Bill Nye, and, man, that was just an utter defeat for for christianity but you know i must confess i didn't even bother to watch it but if you think about it 
neither one has a background in biology. Neither yeah. one has a background in geology. I mean, Bill Nye, I think his background is electrical engineering. Uh, I'm not sure what Ken Ham's is. So, he just kept saying the Bible. That, that was every time. Well, there's this book. That, that was his argument. But, you know, I wonder whether he realizes what a dis, in the grand scheme of things, he, I know he has his groupies, mm. but what a disservice he's doing to Christianity. Oh, yeah. One final story. Back in the day, my wife was actually on the editorial board for Ken Ham's journal, Creation Ex Nihilo. Okay. She was one of the reviewers. And they sent her a paper on virology, which is her field. And she said, this is awful. It's, it's wrong. Please don't publish it. You know, it's embarrassing. They published it anyway. And she wrote them and said, why in the world did you publish this paper? It's full of mistakes. I pointed them out in my review. Uh -huh. And apparently she was told it supports our position that evolution can't happen. So, so they used published it. it. You know, this is what is sometimes disparagingly called lying for Jesus. Yeah. But I think what's, hap gives it a bad taste, what's you know? happening here is that people like Ken Ham don't think of this as an interesting academic dispute. For them, this is life or death. It's an evangelical fight. It's, it's, it's a fight for people's yeah. souls. It's the line in the sand that divides true believers from compromisers and hypocrites. Mm -hmm. And so if it's a war, all's fair in love and war. Yeah. And so one thing that infuriates me is that the creationists will put forth an argument in one of their journals. It's addressed. It's debunked. The evidence is shown why this can't be so. And then three months later, the same argument crops up again. Yeah. It's like playing whack-a-mole, you know. It, it rears its head here, you whack it down, it rears its head here. And after yeah. a while, you start thinking, this isn't really an academic debate. This is a struggle for supremacy in public opinion. And I think that's one of the things that probably pushes me away more than anything because I, you know, it's it's like, you know, this is what I'm supposed to believe. And, you know, we don't hear a lot of educated people's viewpoint on the stuff like yourself. We, you know, the mainstream Christianity you hear on the scientific side, like people like Ken Ham. And I don't know if you've heard of him. I can't think of his name, but he does a documentary called Evolution versus God. Um, if you haven't, you need to go watch it. The whole time, what he does is he walks around and he just asks people, he goes to like college campuses and he says, can you show me a change of kinds? If evolution is true, can you physically show me a change of kinds? Well, obviously no one can do that. Evolution, um, by and large, is a very long process. But you know, not all, first of all, it depends on what you mean by a kind. He's talking about like uh, fish to reptile or reptile to, to bird or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Again, this is not how science works. I mean, science looks at lines of evidence. I could say, okay, we have fossils of feathered dinosaurs. I mean, those are there. They are unquestionable. Yeah. There are dozens of them. If you, We actually have extracted a protein from a Tyrannosaurus rex thigh bone. Really? Yes. If you look at the sequence of amino acids, it aligns most closely with present-day birds. If cool. You, if you look yeah. at... 
you know, neck vertebrae, if you look at wrist joints, if you look at ankle joints, the similarities between small birds and dinosaurs are staggering. I mean, small dinosaurs and birds, I'm sorry. Now, if you ask me to build a time machine and be present over the eons that it took for the transformation, exactly. that's impossible. For one thing, if you travel into the past, you run into the time travel paradox. What if you change events so that your parents are never born, then you cease to exist? Yeah, It's the stuff of science fiction. But if you want to talk about species, this is one of my favorite examples. We usually define species as populations that cannot interbreed successfully. They are reproductively isolated. Okay. Back during World War II, uh, salmon, a particular kind of salmon, um, let me think for a second, it was mm -hmm. one of the species of Pacific salmon. You're good. Was introduced in Lake Washington near Puget Sound. Salmon do the salmon thing. They live in the lake, then they swim upstream, they look for little tributaries, and they spawn. Mm -hmm. In 1957, a population started spawning off of a beach, Pleasure Point Beach. So that would have been 61 years ago. Okay. In 61 years, they've diverged in body form. The beach spawners are much deeper bodied because they don't run the risk of getting stuck in shallow streams. Yeah. So they're physically different. And if you bring them together, they don't interbreed successfully. So in reality, they have split into something that's very close to two different species in 61 yeah. years. Yeah, it's actually, it's called Evolution versus God, Shaking the Foundations of Faith. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually Ray Comfort hmm. is the guy. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he is uh, probably kookier than Ken Ham, in my opinion. So it's going to set my teeth on edge. But, uh, uh, but, you know, I also, there are people at this, in this dialogue, they're much more reasonable. Francis Collins, Carl Guyberson, you know, Francis Collins mm. wrote The Language of God. And he's the director of NIH. He was the head of the Human Genome Project. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, and he wrote The Language of God. He and Carl Guyberson wrote together The Language of Science and Faith. There's a cell biologist named Ken Miller at Brown, one of the Ivies, and he wrote an excellent book called Finding Darwin's God. Mm -hmm. Somebody at Gordon College, Richard Wright, wrote Biology Through the Eyes of Faith. So there are reasonable people with scientific credentials engaged in this dialogue. They just don't raise a ruckus. We need to hear those guys. We, well, need, we need more of that. So anyone listening, go look those guys up. You know, I have one more thing for you mm -hmm. before we end here. If there is one thing that you could say to like the populace of exvangelical, yes. agnostic type of philosophical, trying to, people trying to find truth in all this, like what would you say? Well, I... I what I would say to the, the evangelicals and the fundamentalists is this is not where your faith stands or falls. Mm. Asking these questions, investigating science honestly, does not jeopardize your eternal salvation. It doesn't make you a bad Christian. Uh, and if you are a biology major at a Christian college, you don't need to change your major to be a good Christian. Mm. Uh, if you have fallen into... Uh, agnosticism because of the excesses of fundamentalism, there is a whole world 
of what I would call reasonable, well-informed Christianity that you can explore. The book I would start with, if you're an evangelical, I would start with The Language of Science and Faith by Guyberson and Collins. Okay. If you have a little more biology under your belt, or if you're a little more high church, Episcopal or Catholic or lapsed Catholic, I would say start with Ken Miller's Finding Darwin's God. Okay. And if you want to, you can email me all of that material. I'll put it in the show notes and everything so people can look that up. I will, I will email you a bibliography. Awesome. That sounds good. Excellent. Yeah. Well, until we have you on, because I look forward to talking more with you. I, I do as well. Thank I, you for this opportunity. Yes. Thank you. And to everyone out there, we will see you next time. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for listening to this series that we did with Professor Dan Ippolito. He is a biologic biology not biologically he is he is biologically uh existent that is for sure but he is a biology and general professor at anderson university uh look guys if you enjoyed this hit us up let us know on email on facebook on twitter on instagram let us know if you want to hear more stuff like this i personally enjoyed it i've been getting into more of the scientific side of things recently but With that being said, we hope you guys enjoyed this, and we look forward to putting out more things like this in the future. Um, Head over to Facebook, join the community there, get involved, uh, associate with us and with the other people on that page, because we have a lot of fun just conversing different theological stuff, and we have a really good time with it. Head over to Twitter, you can follow us on there. But the main thing that we need you guys to do, we need you to head over to iTunes, search up our podcast, click on it, give us a review, give us a a rating, go share it, do whatever you want to do with it. But those reviews and ratings help us out exponentially because we're trying to climb that podcast chart. So with that being said, thank you so much for all of your support Uh, if you want to support us on Patreon you can head over there and do that we're not asking you though that's only if you really want to with that being said we will see you guys next time and thanks for listening